Good morning. Good to see all of you and be with you. This is, uh, as we know, December 27th, and Christmas Day has passed, but our joy and our celebration of the Christmas season is certainly not over. I've been reminded again this year that Christmas is really not a day, but it is, in fact, a time of year. It is a season. And something I would love to do is I would love to be able to sit with each one of you uh, and to hear from you uh, your experiences and your history and the meaning of Christmas in your life. And I would imagine that I would hear stories of family traditions and childhood memories and then also times where you have been disappointed or there has been sadness associated with this time of year. And so, as in all of our life, fulfillment and sadness are both our lifelong companions at Christmas time. And our aim this Sunday morning, as it has been throughout Advent, is that as we value and we honor our personal histories, we will invite and allow the life of Jesus to intersect and to define and to redeem our lives together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we proclaim you as Christ the King, the glorious one who left heaven and came to be with us. And we have heard most of this, most of us have heard this for many, many years. We have responded to it, but it still amazes us. And we are so grateful that we have this time of year that we have several days and weeks to really consider who you are and what you have done for us and the miracle of the incarnation and the mystery of you becoming a person and then showing us how to live and bursting forth with miracles and with your teaching and how you treated people, what you overcame and how you overcame it, and then your journey to Jerusalem and to the cross. These things uh, fill our minds and fill our hearts with wonder and with questions and with worship. Lord Jesus, this morning, be with us. Holy Spirit, teach us through your word, and we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that would receive this, uh, and that you would give us this morning what we need from you in our lives. We know that we all come from different places this morning and this week, please minister to us as only you can. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as we uh, celebrate Advent during the month of December, we typically will emphasize the prophecies and the events that lead up to the birth of Jesus, the promised one. But Advent doesn't uh, neatly conclude with Jesus in the manger. So this morning, we're going to consider a biblical text that extends the story into the days and the months after that Bethlehem night. And today's theme is identity. Who will this little boy become? And what will happen to him and to those who love and surround him? So my wife Jan and I have been uh, especially mindful of these kinds of questions Uh, in light of a baby boy's birth, because last month our son Ian's wife, Carrie, gave birth to a son, uh, to Cameron. And as we have with 
all of our grandchildren, including we will this coming February with our daughter Lauren and her husband Kyle expecting a child. With each of our grandchildren, when they're a newborn, we hold them. As many of you have with a grandchild or with a child or with a baby uh, that matters to you, uh, and you look in their eyes and you're awestruck at a new life, and you wonder who will he or she become? And what is the Lord calling this little person to? They're a bundle of yet unrealized potential, and you hold them, and you look at them, and you love them, and you soothe them, hoping to feed them on your faith. Now, I imagine Joseph and Mary, with their son, did the same thing, and I'm reminded, thinking about them, of this statement by Soren Kierkegaard, a 19th century Danish philosopher. He said, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. God in his wisdom has encased humanity in time. So our futures are mysterious, and the Lord's designs often elude us. Yet God in his kindness reveals himself to us. In the Gospel of Luke, is one such revelation. Luke begins his book by explaining his motivation in writing a historical account of Jesus' life. Luke begins his gospel this way, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke provided a systematic linear accounting of how his contemporaries came to progressively understand the person and the mission of Jesus, the Messiah. The characters in this story lived it forwards, groping for understanding. We read it with the benefit of hindsight. An enjoyable challenge for the modern reader is to place yourself in an earlier time in order to watch with fresh eyes the unfolding drama of those who are learning for the first time of the divine purposes for this baby and his shocking destiny. The book of Luke and the other Gospels are fundamentally accounts built upon the conflict to recognize the identity of Jesus. And some will embrace it, and others will reject him. Luke 1 and 2 record various responses to Jesus' birth. His unique calling and place in history are recognized by Joseph and Mary, by Mary's cousin Elizabeth, by her husband Zechariah, and by the shepherds. In our text this morning, Luke introduces two additional witnesses to Jesus' identity. They are two devout Jews, and both are associated with the temple. You can turn to Luke 2. We're going to read verses 21 to 38. You can follow along if you brought your Bible with you. Luke 2, 21 to 38. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. 
Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there is a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when he was a virgin, when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Well, can you place yourself in this scene to imagine it as it happened for the very first time? Luke, in his careful unfolding of Jesus' character and authority, presents us with three sets of witnesses. So let's consider them in the order in which that we meet them. First, Mary and Joseph, then Simeon, and then Anna. And we want to see what they learn about Jesus the Messiah, and we want to see what we can learn about him, these witnesses, and ultimately ourselves as well. So first, Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph are the first witnesses in verses 21 to 24. And here we get a glimpse of them as parents of a one-month-old. They are depicted to us as faithful Jews devoted to the law. We learn later in this chapter that they go to Jerusalem every year for Passover. And in these, ver- in these verses, we encounter three Jewish ceremonies. And the Lord embedded in their cultural rhythms of the Jewish people a multitude of ritual observances to mark life's significant passages. These observances serve as a continual reminder of their relationship with God and that all of life was sacred. The three associated with Jesus' infancy are circumcision, purification from childhood, from childbirth, and the consecration of the firstborn. Verse 21 says that at the end of eight days, he was circumcised, which was the practice for all male Jewish children as a sign of being God's covenant people. The next verse references the time had come for purification according to the law of Moses. And this is outlined in Leviticus 12. The mother is considered unclean for 40 days following the birth of a son. And at the end of this time, she would bring a a lamb and a pigeon for an offering. And the law provided if she could not afford a lamb, that she could buy or bring two pigeons. And this was known as the offering of the poor. So we're supposed to notice that Jesus' parents were forced to bring an offering 
of the poor. Because Jesus identifies from his birth with the very poor that he reached out to save. So the Lord wants us to know that the family that Jesus grew up in knew about the haunting insecurities of life and that Jesus himself knew about the difficulties of making ends meet. And this is a somber reminder to not just out of hand look down upon the impoverished. We must refrain from judging those of lesser means than ourselves. If we scorn or dismiss the poor, then we likely would have done the same thing to Jesus himself as a boy. The third Jewish observance is the consecration or the redemption of the firstborn. In Exodus 13, the Lord declares that all firstborn males, whether human or animal, are sacred to God. And Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to present him to the Lord in the temple, signifying that he was holy to the Lord. From this section, let's remember that Mary and Joseph from the beginning firmly rooted Jesus in the life of the law. And this is essential for the witness for the Messiah because Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 7, don't think I came to destroy the law or prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. Next, we move on from the parents to meet a startling witness to the identity and the purposes of the Messiah. And his name is Simeon. He's a man of unusual qualities introduced to us in verse 25. He is righteous and devout, the text says. The Holy Spirit rests upon him. The Spirit revealed to him that he will not die until he has seen the Messiah. And all of this points to a vibrant walk with God. Luke emphasized in verses 21 to 24 the law. And now here he underscores the Spirit in verses 25 to 27. Jewish leaders of that day often would elevate the law over the Spirit. Jesus himself exhibited a life animated by both law and Spirit, demonstrating that they're not incompatible. So early on, we learn that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Jews rightfully regarded themselves as God's chosen people. And as such, many of them imagined that one day they would have dominion, that they would lord over all the other nations. And according to 2 Samuel 7, they believed that a king would arise in the line of David to revive the glories of Israel. But for centuries now, they languished. Because the spirit of prophecy had ceased, Greece and now Rome oppressed their nation. And the godly in Israel were waiting for a visitation from the Lord, the consolation of Israel, which means comfort or a lifting up of spirits. So occupied, weary Jerusalem longed to receive her comfort and relief from the Lord, which was expected to be brought about by the Messiah. So in a profound confluence of expectation and promise, Simeon comes upon the infant Jesus in the temple and he recognizes that this in his life is the moment. And verse 28 reveals what we would have loved to have seen. He took up in his arms that little child and blessed God. And then in a torrent of emotion and prophetic understanding, Simeon speaks. First, he acknowledges in verse 29 that his wait is over. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. As promised, Simeon has seen God's own anointed king. And in doing so, he reveals a rare comprehension of God's heart and God's plan. Upon holding the baby, he tells the Lord, for my eyes have seen your salvation. So to see Jesus is to see salvation. 
Verses 31 and 32, Simeon reveals the purpose of God's entrance into the world. It's the consolation of Israel is to become the light of the world. His words, God, you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And this echoes what the shepherds heard, the angels proclaim, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And then Isaiah described back in chapter 49 when he talked of the Messiah, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So this imagery of light recalls Zechariah's prophecy uh, at the end of chapter 1 in which he exalts in the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Jesus is light in two distinct ways. For the Gentiles, he is revelation. Salvation has now been opened up to the nations as never before. All the nations will come to him for light and for life. And for Israel, Jesus is glory. His light is glory. The realization of the promises made by God, which confirms Israel's place in God's heart. The magnitude of who their son was to become must have been disorienting for Mary and for Joseph. That their son, the long ago promised one, did not come for Israel's vindication and for international dominance, but rather that all the enemies of God could come to know him. What a startling revelation. So let's take a moment and let verse 33 sink in. His father and mother marveled at what was said to them. What have these young first-time parents heard about their son? Mary and Joseph did not fully live within the constraints of Kierkegaard's universal claim. They lived their life with Jesus forward, of course, but aspects of his future had been revealed to them ahead of time. And what must that have been like? As devout Jews, they, they loved God's law, presumably knew the history of their nation, And they were coming to recognize that God's story, the entire arc of human history, was intersecting with their own in unique and profound ways. We know now that the hopes and fears of all the years did meet in Bethlehem that night. For we know that each person's greatest need is to be reunited with his creator, to quell the battle for freedom from divine authority and dominance over divine constraints. What's being said to Mary and Joseph calls forth the beauty and the emotions of relationship. It's the language and it's the reality of being truly known by God, of belonging to Him, of sharing trust, forgiveness, and permanence. There is so much more here than merely rational claims and theological statements that simply require a mental assent. So I have to ask myself, how have I allowed myself to embrace these truths from the Old Testament and the prophecies and the things spoken to the parents of Jesus? How have I allowed them to become emotional and relational realities for me in my relationship with God? And so I wonder how it impacts you that God would know you 
and seek you out. That he would enter into your world. Not, not the whole world, which is the whole world, of course, but your world. And he would understand your weariness and hurt. And he would want you in his family. And would want to be with you eternally. He desired these things so much that he made a way to forgive us of our blindness and our ugly pigheadedness. God's story, how he has directed history to rescue and to restore humanity is meant to become the plot line and the meaning of your story. Not in the same way that Mary and Joseph realized they had the privilege to be the central players in that drama, but the magnitude of the Messiah's mission is manifested upon each of our tiny lives here in this rather insignificant place. And amazingly, Jesus has come for us as as much for anybody. And we marvel at what we've been told. So returning to Simeon's uh, interaction, in verse 34, he blesses the parents, and then he speaks to Mary. What we've learned that this child he holds will be a light. We've learned that he's going to be a light. And what does light do? Well, it exposes. And in time, an entire nation and eventually the world is going to have to decide upon the identity of Jesus of Nazareth and whether to follow or oppose him. Simeon declares, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign that is to be opposed so the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Rather than raise up Israel and deliver them from Roman rule, Jesus will be the cause of division. People will contend against and about him. The imagery of this verse originates in Isaiah 8, in which the Messiah Messiah is depicted as a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling. Why is it that way? When God chose to appear and to directly reveal himself and live among among humankind, you'd hope to find gratitude and joyous celebration and unity and joining in with the divine nature and purposes. But this could not occur given Jesus' mission and our nature. As an adult, Jesus explains what his purposes are when he spoke to a powerful man who was confused about Jesus' identity. He stood before Pilate, a Roman official, who possessed the authority to execute Jesus, to take his life. And Jesus said to him, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Try as we might, there is no neutrality with Jesus. We either surrender to him or we're in ultimate conflict with him. For he claims all truth, authority, glory, and to be the rightful object of our worship. Furthermore, Jesus forged the only way back to God through his blood sacrifice on the cross. But this truth doesn't sit well with everyone. Jesus said in John 3, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. 
Earlier in John 3, we read, Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. The consequences are ultimate and eternal. Those who oppose Jesus will fall. Those who follow him will rise. Additionally, Simeon explains two more elements of Jesus' life. He says, this child is appointed for a sign that is opposed. Of course, we know what a sign is. It's an object or an event whose presence indicates the presence of something else. Biblically, signs are tokens or miracles that God uses to reveal his power, confirm his word, reveal judgment, and remind us of his covenants and his greatness. And these indicators, these signs that God has given through history, can be missed, ignored, opposed, or welcome. And Simeon is warning Mary that through her son, the chosen one of God, many are going to oppose him, rejecting that he's a sign of the Lord's presence and salvation. The Messiah, Simeon reminds her, is thus appointed so the thoughts of many may be revealed. Jesus is the litmus test. One's reception or opposition to this ultimate displayer of God's nature and presence reveals your inmost thoughts about trusting and surrendering to your Creator. Christ's life and death revealed the thoughts of many hearts. Apostle Paul echoes this sentiment in Romans 2.16 where he describes that people's thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Simeon in verse 35 inserts a parenthetical statement about how Mary is going to be affected by the response to, by this response to her son. He warns that a sword will pierce through your own soul also. As a prophetic allusion to her son's crucifixion, Jesus will have his side pierced with a sword. Mary will have her soul pierced by one. She's going to suffer the indignities of some of the Messiah's family commitments being superseded by his divine mission. But more profound, Mary's trust and humility displayed when the angel announced her pregnancy would be tested as she witnesses her son's path of suffering being misunderstood and executed as a common criminal. So Simeon rejoices to gather in his arms the tiny, fragile embodiment of the consolation of Israel. And then he boldly exposes the bittersweet reality of God's plan to to unsuspecting, faithful parents. The third witness we meet is Anna. Although no details of her prophecy are given, we learn significant details of her life. Her virtue and reverent devotion are underlined by her faithful widowhood, her advanced age, and her regular ministry in the temple. Her response to the infant is twofold. First, she gives thanks. As we age, we're prone to sadness or bitterness over loss or change, but she, as an elderly woman, is thankful. And secondly, she tells others. She strengthens the hope of those around her in the temple who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So this section completes Luke's early cycle of male and female witnesses. There's Mary and Joseph as witnesses. Then there's Elizabeth and Zechariah, and now Simeon and Anna. And so these pairings of a man and a woman being witnesses reflect Luke's uncommon regard for women in this strongly patriarchal society. 
These three sets of witnesses we've read about today are exemplary for us. And we learn from them to hear from the Lord, to ponder the meaning of what we are hearing, and to order our lives accordingly as we wait for His purposes and His timing. So from these uh, witnesses, I'd like to conclude by giving us two um, quick implications for our lives. The first implication upon us uh, in this room, in our homes, uh, through live stream, and really to every person who ever encounters the story of Jesus Christ. The implication is determine the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Determine his true identity. It's helpful to be honest about the polarizing nature of Jesus' teaching. He plainly said, you're either for him or against him. One must embrace or stand against his radical claims that he was divine, that he was God himself, the Son of God, and that he has an entirely unique path to salvation, and it goes through him. This is not to be done blindly or in a rushed fashion to come to your conclusions about his identity. You have to engage your whole self, your mind, your emotional and your relational longings, and your will. Fearlessly line up your actions and your choices with your conclusions. And if you're already a follower of Jesus Christ, and you've made your conclusions about his identity, and you've thrown your lot in with him and with his followers, then you need to know that a philosophical worldview war is being waged against you. And this is nothing new. Powerful, learned, and compelling forces opposed Jesus and presumed that they took him down. And they've sought to do the same thing for 20 centuries. In our nation, in our wider communities, there are many who scoff and call the supernatural intervention of a Messiah nothing more than a nonsensical myth. And they seek to dismantle your belief structure and incapacitate the message that's been entrusted to you. So what do we do? Well, we reaffirm the veracity of these witnesses from Luke and from the entire Bible. And then we express that relational, that rational commitment, those conclusions that we've come to. We express them in relational terms. So we love the Lord God with all of our strength and soul and our heart and with our mind. And then you love and respect those who oppose Jesus. You contribute to the flourishing of human endeavors. And then you share the message of our Messiah in winsome and in bold ways. This is nothing new. This has been happening for centuries. Mary and Joseph were told this, and it's played itself out. Second, second implication, don't be surprised by the suffering that comes from following Jesus. The love of the Father, the grace of Christ, and the fellowship of the Spirit are ours now and throughout eternity. But walking in His way is costly. This text provides a specific illustration. Mary and Joseph were entrusted with one of the most significant roles in human history. They were blessed. Yet their lives are dramatically and repeatedly turned upside down. Simeon summed it up by saying that a sword will pierce Mary's soul. And what do we learn from Mary? That like gears designed for one another, we line up our finite experience 
with transcendent purposes. There's a grand story that fuels and defines the universe. It tells of an original beauty that is marred by a tragic moral collapse and then restored by a sacrificial rescue. Hungry for context and meaning, we forever seek to comprehend the inexplicable twists and turns of our own shattered dreams, our losses, and the pain that fragment our lives. But we're living forward. We don't have the benefit of hindsight. So what do we do? We invest time and thoughtful consideration. You pursue conversations with the Lord and with trusted friends. You read the Bible, discovering relational and emotional connections there that you have with your Creator. And all of this is done in order to work through an essential progression. And this progression that God calls you to in your life is to know the story of your own life. Of course, there's the bare facts of your life, which you remember. But there's connections between things. There's ways that God has stepped in and done things. To consider your own life. To comprehend what's going on around you and in you. And then at the same time, learn the story of what God is doing in this world. And then we apply intentionality and trust and spiritual insight to interpret how his story is intersecting with our own. And we see time and time again in Scripture that it won't be the story that one would expect. And it's certainly not fully what one would desire. But the story that he is telling and making your life into is going to be brimming with wisdom, goodness, redemption, and glory to Jesus Christ. For the Lord has woven into creation in all reality the spiritual truths that reflect His nature. At the macro level, He has woven these truths into His design. Truths like this. There is creation, fall, redemption. That suffering precedes glory. That relationship is the path to healing. Rebellion and self-will are destructive. One must live in order to die. Love is the foundation and the fountain of life. These also then, besides being the things that are in the arc of history and embedded into all of creation, they become quite personal and particular. For the Lord is weaving those truths and experiences into the tapestry of your life and into mine. And our role is to actively listen and to watch, to think, and to feel as we begin to understand who God is and what he values, and how he brings that about in this world and in your life. And then we discover glimpses, imprints, interventions, direct guidance, and holy purposes that he has personally placed in our lives. As the beginning accounts in Luke make clear, we're going to be startled and confounded and then exhilarated by the path that God has chosen for us. To walk in the way of Jesus is surrendering to and celebrating how God's story intersects with your own. So like Mary and Joseph, we humbly and gratefully accept the post assigned to us for the greater good of the kingdom. 
We marvel at the privilege of knowing and serving our Messiah. And we join Simeon, Anna, and countless others in worshiping, telling others about, and waiting for our King. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that you have placed us at a post. We didn't ask to to be brought into this world. There's so many things about us that we've had no control over, and we recognize your providence in that, in each one of our individual lives. Thank you for these accounts that you've given to us from real history of people like Mary and Joseph who were visited by angels and by prophets, and were told things that were beyond understanding that confounded them. And we pray, Lord, that you would give to us the gift of faith and of understanding and of spiritual insight and courage and boldness and willingness and surrender and joy. And that we would understand what it means to live with you and to feel your compassion and your warmth and to speak with you in the mornings and throughout the day and before we go to bed and in our households and with our friends and with colleagues and with all around this world that we can receive from you and then live for you and be your messengers and your people on this earth. In Christ's name, amen.